0: Let's take our Bibles now, if you would, please, and open them to Revelation chapter 6. I know many of you have been patiently waiting for us to get to this part of the book of Revelation uh, because this starts uh, some of these things that most people are really interested in, uh, especially if you're interested in end-time prophecy. This is the part of the book that most people like to get to. So I mentioned before, there are many people that are in a big hurry to get through chapters 2 and 3, because those are things that uh, deal with what's happening now, the present age. And some of the things that we read there are very convicting for Christians, and so they'd like to move on beyond that. But what we read in chapters 2 and 3 are very, very important to prepare us as a church for events that are about to happen. There are, right now, great times of apostasy upon us. There are many churches that are faltering in their study, and their preaching, and their teaching, in the Word of God... And I'm very much afraid that there are a lot of people who are attending churches that are not going to be prepared when Jesus comes back. They haven't heard the truth, uh, people that aren't really saved because the gospel hasn't been preached in its purity. And so folks are not going to be prepared when Jesus comes. Now, I firmly do believe, as our Baptist forefathers believed, that the coming of Christ is imminent. Uh, Jesus could come today. There's nothing at all that would prevent that. There's nothing that we'll read in the book of Revelation uh, on through the rest of the book that has to happen before uh, Jesus comes back. There's no prophecy that has to be fulfilled, but Jesus could come back even this evening. But I do know this, that the last days of the earth are upon us. I'm not going to predict when Jesus is coming back. I can't do that. Nobody knows. But I I do believe the last days are upon us, and the Bible tells us that in those days there will be false teachers, false prophets, uh, terrible heresies will be preached all around the world from pulpits, and uh, it's just a terrible time because the truth of the gospel is not going out today. So I, I can't identify the time that Jesus is coming. But for anybody who reads the Bible and looks at the things that the apostles wrote there, especially about these subjects, you just kind of get the feeling that it can't be too much longer. So America, I think, today, and really the world, is sort of being set up by those false gospels that are being preached. You take people like Osteen, who's preaching a gospel of materialism, and that is the Perfect setup. It's a perfect introduction for the Antichrist to come. Well, chapter 6, where we're reading tonight, is a dramatic change from the scenes of chapters 4 and 5. There we were talking about things that take place in heaven. And if you remember, I said at the beginning of chapter 4, there are many people who believe those first couple of verses give us a reference to the rapture of God's people out of the world. If that's what it's talking about there, and I think that probably it is, and if not there, then the Bible does teach it in other places, that the church, those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, we're not going to go through this time of tribulation. And so the church has been called into heaven. All who are believers are there. And chapters 4 and 5 describe scenes that are in heaven. But here in chapter 6, we see something different, and that's because the, the scene shifts. It shifts to things that are taking place on the earth so the majesty of heaven is not what we're talking about here and this is talking about the world and the world is a very much different place than what we find in chapters two and three even as we talk about the church age and that's because as i said the church is gone During this time of tribulation that's coming, the restraining power of the Holy Spirit will be removed from the world. For the most part, the Holy Spirit will not restrain the wickedness of the world. So if you're a child of God tonight, you just need to thank the Lord that you're not going to see any of this. You're going to be called out of it. If you're the redeemed, blood-bought child of God, you won't have to experience these things. But for anyone else, if you're not a believer in Christ, then you ought to be wary Of the things we're going to talk about tonight. So if you take your Bibles, please, Revelation chapter 6, let's stand and we're going to read the uh, first eight verses of this chapter. Revelation 6, beginning at verse number 1. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard as it were the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow. And a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, "'Come and see.' And there went out another horse that was red. Power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword." And his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beast of the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you tonight, we just thank you for the privilege we have of being here. Lord, bless this word as we open it. Help us to understand what you have for us in this portion of Scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The title of tonight's message is the Broken Seals of Redemption Scroll. It's actually part number one of a three-part message, so it's going to take us a little while to get through these different things. But I want to set up the scene for you here as chapter 6 begins. Uh, Chapter 4 is the... Uh, beginning of the last division of the book of Revelation. Uh, From our outline in Revelation chapter 1 verse 19, you remember that John was supposed to write the things that he saw, the things which are, and things which shall be hereafter. We take a futuristic view of Revelation, and so the things that we're reading about right now in this third section are all prophetic. None of these things that we're reading about has already taken place, but these are a look into the future, and it's a view of what the world would be like after Jesus comes again. And the view that we have is not a pretty one. And after we go through tonight's message, there's going to be several weeks of bad things that I have to reveal. Chapter 6 begins with the opening of Redemption Scroll. It's what I was talking about last week, that scroll that was in the Father's hand. And this chapter begins the opening of that scroll. Since the fall of man in... in, um, a garden, Adam in the Garden of Eden, uh, Satan has usurped the authority of God upon the earth, and the fall of man brought a horrible curse upon all mankind. And what we're reading here in Redemption Scroll, the scroll that's unopened by Jesus, or opened, I should say, by Jesus, is the story of redemption. And it's the story of how God has placed all authority into the hands of his son Jesus Christ to reclaim, to win back, to take this earth back, the forfeited inheritance that we lost when Adam sinned. So this is the opening of God's book. And this book, as I have described it before, is a scroll. Each section of the book is marked off with a seal, and sections can't be read until each seal is broken. So what we're reading here is God's title deed to the earth. No one is worthy to open this scroll except the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world. And so it's Jesus who takes the scroll out of the Father's hand. He alone has the authority and has all power to implement this plan, God's plan of the earth's reclamation. Now, in each of these seals that are broken, there's a judgment that's poured out on the earth. This evening, we're going to look at the first four seals, And most of you have probably heard of these. You may may not know very much about them, but you have at least heard about this. Commonly, it's called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And each one of these horsemen corresponds to a seal that's broken off of this scroll. So let's talk about that uh, tonight. Uh, Verse number 1 says, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard as it were the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see." And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now the Lamb of God opens this very first seal, and as soon as he opens it, there's this tumultuous, thundering noise in heaven. One of the cherubim speaks out, and he says, Come and see. Now, I need to explain what the cherubim is saying there because it looks like that the cherubim is speaking to John and he's saying to him, come and see what's about to happen. But really, that construction is wrong. What we should look at this as being interpreted as the rider on the horse is the one who's being called. And so what's being said here, actually, in these different places where it says, come and see, that would read, proceed, come, ride forth. And so, this is the cherub that's calling that rider on the horse to come out and to ride that horse across the stage of earth. So, the first rider that comes out and the first judgment that's pronounced upon the earth is the one of the white horse. And this is a judgment that uh, stands, or it stands for political judgment. This is a political judgment that's being poured out. So, here we see a rider that comes out on a majestic white horse. And he comes with a bow and a crown, and he comes forth as a conqueror. Now that tells us that this rider is a victor. He's a person who has power and his stature. He has an image here of a, what we would think like a white knight in shining armor. And here is a person that looks like that everybody can have confidence in because he rides in on this horse, this great white steed, with all acclaim and authority. Now the white horse here harkens back to the image of days gone by when there were conquerors who sat on the best white horses that could be found. And the picture that we get from this is of strength and, and of, of beauty. The beauty of the horse itself and the rider that rides on that horse is, is a picture of goodness and deliverance. Something good is about to happen. And that is exactly what this rider is trying to portray. Many have compared the rider here in the rider of this horse, the white horse in Revelation chapter 6, to the rider that we see in Revelation chapter 19. And in that chapter, we definitely know who the rider of that horse is because that's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes in at the end of these calamities. He doesn't come in riding at the beginning, but he comes at the end. That's after all the disasters have been poured out, and then Jesus comes to deal that death blow to Satan and all of his enemies. What comes before here is a different rider, and uh, the the Son of God is actually the one who's directing all of these judgments that takes place with the opening of these seals. So who is the rider then? It's a white horse, and he looks like he's coming to do uh, just good things for the entire world. He does come forth as a conqueror, and we see here he has power and authority. And so, again, he does look like the one who's sent to be the world's savior. But this is not the Christ. This is actually the Antichrist. He's an imitator. He's a deceiver. And he appears as one who can unite the world and to bring peace and simply make the world a better place. But the Antichrist is actually the puppet of Satan. And what Satan has always done, he's always tried to imitate God. And that's why the white horse, and that's why he looks like he comes with power and authority, he looks like a good thing. He comes promising a better life, he comes promising economic success, he comes with world peace, and he's able to deliver that just long enough that he can get people to believe him and to follow him blindly. Now, we'll take just a moment here this evening to examine some of his methods. He comes here on a horse. Now, horses are usually symbolic of war. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses gave a prophecy concerning Israel. He said there was coming a time, and he predicted, that a time would come when Israel would desire a king to rule over them. So 400 years before Israel ever asked for a king, Moses actually laid down criteria for them choosing a king. And one of the things that Moses said is that the king is not to own many horses. He can't multiply to himself horses. Horses were symbols of war, And God's idea was that a horse was an advantage in warfare. And he didn't want his people to rely upon their own strength and upon uh, whatever weapons and so forth that they could gather together. And he didn't want them to have the advantage that horses gave because then they wouldn't look to him for their full strength and believe that God could deliver them. So he told them that you can't have a king who's going to multiply to himself horses. So the horse then is a symbol of war. Well, the Antichrist will come as a victor. He comes on this horse, but we notice in this war that he comes in that he has a very peculiar weapon. The Bible says that he has a bow and a crown that's given to him. But one of the things that it doesn't say here, he has the bow, but he doesn't have any arrows. Now, that's a significant thing, and we might overlook that, but the Antichrist does not come in a war at first where he comes killing people to take control. He comes as a world dictator, but he doesn't come in power uh, of military might. He's not seeking to rule the world in that way, at least at first. And so he actually comes to power in a bloodless coup. He doesn't need these weapons. And that's because he's going to be recognized as a, as a person who has all the answers. He's proud, he's confident in his abilities. He has political prowess and political promises... And he has policies that look so much better than anything that the world has ever seen before. And so he comes as an economic guru, and he comes with shared wealth for everybody. Now, he'll come in the power, then, of political process and compromise. And what he'll do is he'll put together a coalition of people from all around the world, different people of different races, different nationalities. And the world will acclaim him as their leader without even a shot being fired. Now, also notice this crown that's on his head. This is actually a different word for crown than the one that we see in Revelation chapter 19. In chapter 19, there's a crown on the head of Jesus. And the word that's used there comes from diadema. And it's actually a word that means a reigning sovereign king. And it's never used for anything but that, a reigning sovereign king. I don't suppose any of you have ever heard me refer to Jesus as a sovereign, have you? You probably haven't heard that word from me. But this word here, in Revelation 6, verse number 2, this is a different word. This is the word Stephanos. It's not a reigning crown as a sovereign, but rather this is a wreath like you'd give to a winner at the Olympic Games. And so this is a crown that's placed on his head by men. And how gladly that men will do this. I mean, he'll come, he'll proclaim peace, and the world, believe it or not, for a short period of time, will see great peace. In fact, the Antichrist is so good at what he does that he's able to forge both religious and political alliances. Now, when we get further into the book of Revelation, we're going to talk about how the Roman Catholic Church figures into this. Because in the beginning, the Roman Church, Roman Catholic Church will play a very important part in helping the Antichrist to come to power or to achieve his power over the world. And what they'll help him do is unite all of the religions of the world, including the Jewish religion. And so for the first time in all the world's history, what we'll see then is peace made between Arabs and Jews. The whole world will lend its support to this, to the Jews. And so the Jews will then begin to reconstruct their temple in Jerusalem. Now, right now... As most of you know, there is a mosque that stands on the temple mount and many people believe that that's the main thing that keeps the temple from being built there, that that's the obstruction. Uh, You have this Jewish mosque that's there and as Brother Gary uh, could attest to it, that going up on the Temple Mount is not such a simple thing. It's, it's, it is so more now than it has been in the past. But uh, the Jews are not allowed to go up there right now. And so people think that that's the thing that keeps uh, the temple from being built. I have a picture of that, don't we? Yeah, this is the Dome of the Rock is what it's called. This sits on the Temple Mount. And as I said, many people think that that's what's uh, obstructing the uh, the. Uh, reconstruction of the temple, but on the other hand, the Temple Mount was actually much larger than what we see today. And in this next slide, you see an area uh, to the so the northern side of that of that uh, mosque there, and this is a place where some people believe that the temple could have actually stood. And so the mosque that's there may not prevent the rebuilding of the temple, but the Jews even right now are assembling all the materials that they need to make this a reality. Uh, One of the places that we visit, if you'll give me this next slide, here's the sign for the place. It's called Treasures of the Temple. And in this place... There are Jews there that are putting together all the things that are necessary, all the furnishings and so forth that will go into the temple when it's rebuilt. Uh, The next slide shows us a Jewish menorah, and this is uh, just a very beautiful piece. It's very large. It stands right outside of there, and it's their intention to take that and to place it into the temple. One of the questions that uh, I ask our teacher that was teaching us there i said how how are they going to do this in such a short period of time i mean we're talking about actually uh the tribulation period is seven and a half years but there's only going to be about three and a half years to get this temple constructed and get it up and for the worship to begin there so i said well how is that possible i mean how could they put such an ornate building together so easily And he explained that they're right now putting all the pieces of the building together. And so they have warehouses where these things are housed and they can take this temple and they can put it together like an erector set and they can have that thing up there in no time at all. Well, the Antichrist is actually going to make all of that happen. And when they do, the Jews will begin to reinstitute their animal sacrifices. And so the, the Antichrist will forge a a peace between all parties. He'll align the world religiously and politically, and there will be peace for a while. And the Jewish people will believe, well, they're ready for the reemergence of their kingdom that they once had. And so the Jews then will enjoy a peace that they've not enjoyed in their entire history. But there's three and a half years of peace here, and that peace is going to be shattered because the Antichrist is a deceiver. See, he's not interested in their welfare, not the Jewish welfare. He's not interested in the welfare of the world. He's not interested in religion. He's interested in political power. And he's interested in the politics of power. So what happens then? Well, the peace is shattered. Now make this note before we go on, that this is the fractured peace of politics. Now let me warn you about something. There is no political savior. There is no lasting peace on the earth. And when we start talking about peace on earth right now, all of that is nothing but smoke and mirrors because there will be no peace. And so the Antichrist, and he's finally going to reveal his true colors, he had an agenda all along. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus talks about this and he calls the Antichrist the abomination of desolation. And these things were actually prophesied way back in the time of Daniel. And there is a threefold fulfillment to Daniel's prophecy when he speaks about the abomination of desolation. You see, the temple has been desecrated before. Back about 100, between 100 and 200 years before Christ came, there was a a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And he went into the temple of God. He erected a pagan altar there. He uh, sacrificed a sow upon the altar in the temple. And there he desecrated that temple. And then, as you know, the Roman general Titus in 70 AD, he destroyed that temple that was there at the time of Jesus and the apostles. And so... Uh, the Antichrist has the same kind of thing in mind because you know what he's going to do? He is also going to desecrate this temple that the Jews are about to build. If, and if you'll read in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, let me just uh, read it to you now. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worship listen, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now that's what the Antichrist is going to do. This temple will be built, but then the Antichrist will go into that temple and sit there and show himself to be God. Now that's exactly the way that Satan works. He's never been anything but an imitator. And this Antichrist, as smooth and savvy as he might be, he is not the real thing. So beware When anybody ever comes along and say peace, peace, when there is no peace. And then we ought to beware of people who promise us health, wealth, and prosperity. And promise a chicken in every pot and health care for everybody. Beware of people who will surrender our nation for what they call the good of the world. Now the first judgment that comes here is political judgment. And I'll also say this, that woe to Christians who may in fact help usher in the Antichrist because they believe that the politics of our economy is more important than God's word and our morality. And so that tells us, I think, that the Antichrist might very well be here today. We don't know who he is. We can't put our finger on that. But we do know this. Jesus is coming back. When he does, he'll pull all the Christians out of the world and immediately these things will start to take place. Now, I think it's interesting that the rapture of Christians will probably cause an economic collapse in the world. I mean, we'll be gone from our jobs. Uh, people that have been trained to do certain things that are not going to be here anymore. People won't know what's happening, and there'll be all kinds of chaos when, when God's people are taken out. Until this man comes along, and he swaggers in, and he says, I know exactly what to do. I'll take charge. I can get us out of this mess. And people believe him. And so thus begins seven years of terrible carnage. Now, I want to move on quickly because there's three more of these judgments we want to talk about in this first part of the message. And I'll have more to say about the Antichrist as we go through here and then, of course, much more to say as we go on in the book of Revelation. But then we have a, a second horse that comes out here. And this is the red horse. And this one represents military judgment. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, "'Come and see.'" And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. So this bloodless coup that brings the Antichrist in is not a lasting peace. Now, he speaks peace, but in order to enforce his real hidden agenda, which is world domination, there couldn't be anything but war. And so the bloodless coup doesn't last for very long. Now, how is it then that the, the Antichrist will be able to uh, keep his stranglehold on everything as he goes through this process of shutting down these religious and political alliances? He starts to break all of that down. He's not interested in the religion, and so it becomes just a political empire. Well, religion was actually is actually just the method that he uses to achieve his objectives. He uses religion when he needs it, whenever he wants that. But when religion uh, starts to be a a liability to him, then he starts to shed that. He can do it as easily as he gained it. You ever notice that about American politics today? That uh, people talk about the religion and family values and all that? And it holds really well until the political tide starts to turn a little bit. And then they can, as I said, shed their religion when they need to because all it is is to bring people into power. So religion is not his objective, world domination is objective. So how does he do that then? He's going to break down this religious alliance. How does he do that and maintain control? Well, interestingly here, this particular text speaks of subtlety. This rider comes in on the red horse and he takes peace from the earth. And so the peace is shattered and people start to kill one another. Well, this is a military judgment And perhaps I could better call it a militant judgment because the Antichrist does not gain his objectives by at first putting together a huge marching army. Now, Hitler tried that. Stalin tried that. Uh, Saddam Hussein, at the beginning of the first Gulf War, uh, it said that he had the fourth largest standing army in all of the world. Well, the Antichrist is not going to repeat that mistake. And so assembling a huge army at first, that's not going to work for him. So the key to this is in the last part of verse number 4. It says, And there was given unto him a great sword. Now the Greek word for sword when it refers to a a soldier who goes into battle is the word "ramphaea," And what that refers to is a large sword. I mean this is the kind of sword that a a soldier pulls out and he goes against another and he clangs it against his shield and, and they fight in that way. He has this huge sword. This is not the word that's used here. And said this word. This word is the word macaria, not macarena, not macaroni, but it's macaria. And this word means a dagger. Now, this is a knife that's used for slitting a person's throat or slitting the throat of an animal, like in sacrifice. Now the idea here then is this not this is not battlefield type of warfare, but this is actually like secretive terrorism. This is a person who slips into the night when uh, uh, his enemy is sleeping and he cuts his throat. This is class warfare. It's what we're talking about uh, one class fighting against another class, Americans against Americans and Spanish against Spanish and whites against black and vice versa, Latinos against Latinos. I mean, this is the kind of, of fighting that we're talking about. And you know, it's really scary when you start to think about this because there's not really much concern in America today that somebody's going to come over here with ships and tanks and land on our soil and uh, with huge armies, they're going to overrun us. We're not really worried about that. But you know what we're all scared of? The terrorist, the sneak attack, somebody that we don't know. Just like in September 11, 2001, that's the thing that we're afraid of today and that is exactly the kind of warfare that the Antichrist is going to use. So I'll tell you this again too. Beware of leaders who want to negotiate and cavort with terrorists because the Antichrist is going to take all of his political enemies or kill all of his political enemies, I should say, in covert operations. And so he'll use a dagger, not a bazooka. So what is this then? Well, this is the wrath of God in war. You see, when these seals are open, God's not helpless. I mean, this is not God out of control here, not being able to take care of what's happening. God is actually using these things to bring about the downfall. So it's Christ is the one who opens the seals. He's the one who lets the calamity out. And his purpose is ultimately fulfilled in every one of these steps. So, we ought not to make any mistake about this. The Bible does not call this the day of the devil. It calls it the day of the Lord, because he's the one who's in control. But then we see a third horse that comes, and the third horse is the black horse, and this represents economic judgment. Verse 5 And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Well, the Antichrist came in lauding himself as an economic savior. He comes in with policies that, for a while, do reap great benefits, great economic benefits. But the bloodless coup, as I said, doesn't last. Now, when the the Antichrist comes in, it's not that he came in with no hope. He comes in with great hope. I mean, people are, are just thank him for the great policies that he's going to implement. And they see there's a huge change here from uh, the policies, uh, economic policies of the world before this. But then what happens on the world scene while everybody's trying to get on this economic bandwagon? I mean, there's a boon at first. There's prosperity everywhere. But what happens when the money starts to run out because... The social programs have expended all of the resources. And then what happens when the Antichrist, in his attempts to quell all of the uprisings and people who would try to depose him, and he starts to put money into military operations in order to maintain his control? Well, things and resources start to drain off, and so the economic guru becomes an economic failure. And so what happens then is that the world is plunged into, into a worldwide famine. So we see this writer coming, and he has a pair of balances in his hands. And when it talks here about the cost of goods in those verses, the idea that's portrayed here is that a man will be able to earn only enough to feed himself. And he has to take that money, that it, that whatever he has to feed himself, and he has to stretch that to feed the entire family. And so starvation and deprivation, I mean, like we see in Sudan and Ethiopia today, that's going to be common over the entire world. But notice here what he says in the end of verse 6. He says, see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Scholars are divided about what that means, but it seems to indicate that the oil and the wine represents what can be had only by the very rich. And so as poverty and famine and starvation become rampant over the entire world, then you have this wider division that comes between the haves and the have-nots. And so the middle class begins to shrink. So then you only have two classes. You have the very rich and you have the extremely poor. Well, the rich go on. They can continue to divide to just like they always did. And most likely they're able to do that because they have the favor of the Antichrist. They're the ones that help him to maintain his power. But those that are very poor, the other half or the majority of the world ends up in starvation. So what's the judgment here? Well, the world goes from feast to famine. The very things that the uh, Antichrist promised at the beginning that made him so attractive, the peace and the prosperity, all of that's gone. And so now there's nothing but starvation. And what that does, it actually increases the Antichrist's control. And that's because there's no one who has the strength, there's no money, there's no organization, there's no willpower to resist him. But these hardships aren't over. There are more seals to come. Now, we only have time to deal with one more tonight. And this is the fourth horseman of the apocalypse. And his horse is the pale horse. And we call this welfare judgment. And I mean by that judgment on the health of people. In verse number 7, it says, And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. It's interesting that the four horsemen attack the very things that are most popular in religion and in politics today. They attack health, wealth, and prosperity. Well, the fourth horse that comes is the pale horse, now, the word pale here is actually uh, the Greek word chloros, and what it means is green. It's a very ghastly green. And there's some commentators who, who liken this to the color of leprosy in the Old Testament. I remember uh, years ago when I was in college, I had an anatomy class, and uh, we went to the University of Kentucky Medical Center, and there we were put into a room where we were going to do dissection on cadavers. And in this room, I I can remember walking in there with the smell of formaldehyde and looking at all those dead bodies. I mean, there were hundreds of these dead bodies in there, and and it was just a very sickening smell and a very ghastly color. Now, that's what this means right here. It's the look and the scent of death. So the wars and the famine are sufficiently widespread across the whole world that one-fourth of the world's population dies. Now, the world's population today... It's about 6.7 billion people. If one-fourth of everyone died, that would be about one and two-thirds billions of people that would die. You know, when we think about hunger and we think about starvation, we think, well, that's way off in some other part of the world. I mean, we're talking about India here. We're talking about Africa and China, third world nations, somewhere else. Those are the people that starve. Well, if America is around at this time, there will also be starvation right here. It will come to America as well. And when you think about one-fourth of the world's population that dies with war and famine, what are they going to do with all those dead bodies? Where are the resources to, to bury them properly? Well, there won't be any. So most likely what they'll do is they'll begin to burn dead bodies or push them over into mass graves. And what happens then when they do that? Well, the inevitable result of that is worldwide disease. So what comes with the fourth horse? It's death from disease. This is the judgment on the health of the world. Now, I don't like to spend an entire message talking about bad things and unpleasant thoughts, but this eighth verse ends with an unpleasant thought. I mean, there's really nothing that we can take hope in here. Death is personified as this pale rider, and he comes to kill with the sword, with hunger, and with death. And then there's another interesting piece to it. It says, and with the beast of the earth. some people believe that these beasts will be wild animals. And normally, these wild animals would be in their natural habitats. But because of the famine, and because the earth has been so ravaged by war, starvation, that people are eating just about anything that they can get their hands on. And so, this also causes deprivation in the animal kingdom as well. And so, what these wild animals do, they begin to range outside of their natural habitats... And they go into people's neighborhoods and they begin to devour people in that way. So, uh, in those days, you don't want to go hiking in Antedale with all those mountain lions out there because you won't come back. But there might be something else in this as well. And that is, these beasts might be something as small as a rat. You know, rats have been responsible for killing millions upon millions of the world's population. Back in the... Uh, In the uh, Dark Ages, the bubonic plague killed, in Europe, killed one-third of Europe's population, and that was carried by rats. Just recently, I read a story about uh, rats that had crawled into a baby's crib and ate it, killed it. So with all these dead bodies that are around, it's possible that rats will multiply so that when you step outside of your house, you're going to have a hard time not stepping on one. And you're going to have to be very careful. I say you, that's generic. Uh, people will have to be very careful because when they go to bed at night, it's likely that things like rats will crawl into the beds and eat people's faces off, chew their noses off, and things like that. Rats get hungry too. They've got to eat. And so it's very, it can be very likely this is what will happen. So we really can't imagine how horrible that it will be. But perhaps we shouldn't end there. Now, there are more seals that are to be opened, and there's more calamity that will come. But let's don't end on that thought. Uh, Hopefully, you can take what everybody here in the room tonight, you can take what I've said as informational only, because you're not going to have to worry about being there. As I said, you'll be taken out of the world. You don't have to live in this kind of time. In fact, you can find yourself in chapters 4 and 5. And you can find yourself in the safety of heaven watching what goes on in the earth rather than being a part of that. And the Bible says that the only thing that a person needs to do to avoid this terrible time is to trust Jesus. And I would encourage people to do this right now. And I say that because it just kind of seems that there are so many coincidental things that are happening in the world today to make us believe that the coming of Christ would be much further away. The scripture says, behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Trust him now, and you'll never have to worry about this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we do know Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you've revealed the truth of your word, and we're able to stand here tonight and proclaim your truth to your people. And I do pray, Lord, that there's not a single person here today who hasn't received you as Savior. Terrible times are coming, and we just pray, Lord, for that deliverance that we know that you promised to your people. So, Heavenly Father, we just pray that if there's someone here tonight who doesn't know you as Savior, that they would understand the terrible calamity that will come upon the world, that they won't chance this, that they'll receive you as Savior now and be safe and secure from all of these things, and then may, may, may we, as the people of God, may we warn others about the wrath that is to come And then we pray, Lord, that you would deliver people through our word. Bless this invitation tonight, and we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's please stand.